0: Good morning, Tyndale, and welcome to the first lecture talk in our Faith Talks series in the fall of 2014. We actually had one in January as well because of a a timing issue, and Carolyn Ahrens was here then. Um, And today I am so pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. James K.A. Smith, Uh, He comes to us from Grand Rapids, Michigan. How many of you have ever written Grand Rapids, Michigan in a bibliography? Yeah, you got to go sometime. (laughs) I'm taking a team in January. Actually, we're going to a worship symposium together. Uh, It's been said, I've heard people say, this is... This is, finally, I'm arriving here, the place that I've written about the most in my entire life, right? Because everything is published in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So Jamie is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College. Actually, he holds the Gary and Henrietta Biker Chair in Applied Reformed Theology and Worldview. I like that, Applied Theology. But he is a Canadian. He was born in Embro, Ontario. Any Ambronians? Here? Well, you are. (laughs) He told me actually on the way over that that is an abbreviation of Edinburgh and that there's a a large Scottish uh, presence there. He studied both in Canada at the University of Waterloo and the Institute for Christian Studies and the US. He went to Emmaus Bible College, which is in Dubuque, Iowa, and he did a a PhD at Villanova in Philadelphia. And before teaching um, at uh, Calvin, Jamie lived in California and he taught at Loyola Marymount University. He's known for writing prodigiously and widely on a whole range of topics and to a wide variety of audiences also in his speaking. So he knows that this talk is pitched uh, towards university college students, which is the nature of the Faith Talks series. His book, Desiring the Kingdom, won the Christianity Today Book Award in the Theology Ethics category. And I imagine that uh, many people even here as well have read it. And his first lecture today springs from that material. There are three consecutive lectures. The second one is on the second book in that series, Imagining the Kingdom. And the third book is not yet written, right, Jamie? Yeah. So you're getting a preview of that. Jamie's married to his elementary school sweetheart. Yep, we can hear it for that, Deanna. (laughs) And uh, together they have four children, straddling the late teens and and early 20s and he's surviving. Uh, So let's welcome together our speaker, Jamie Smith.
1: Thanks very much, Jones. Great to be here. Good morning, Tyndale. It's an honor. I, this is my first visit, uh, and, and yet I, I've known. I knew about Tyndale when you were OBC, uh, so it's it's fun to be here. It's always a treat to be back in Canada. It usually just takes a couple of days, and I get my A back and my aboot back. Uh, otherwise, I'm, I'm a, a pretty sorry excuse for a Canadian in terms of speech patterns. Lived in the States too long. Um, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a sort of arc uh, to these three talks. Think of it this morning, the theme is why worship is the heart of discipleship. I want to make the case for why worship is the heart of discipleship, but then, and in a way, why I think the church is the center of Christian formation, and then I want to spiral out from that to talk about why then worship forms us and shapes us for mission tonight. And then in the third lecture tomorrow, I want to finish by thinking about what does that look like then in terms of our cultural engagement and our cultural uh, um, immersion uh, as we are sent as God's ambassadors into God's world. So let's this morning think about why worship is the heart of discipleship. The first thing I need to do is ask you to um, uh, um, try to set aside our tendency to identify the word worship with, when I say worship, what do you think of? Praise, and you think of music, right? So worship is what we do at the first part of a church service, and then when worship is over, then this guy comes up and talks at us for a long time, right? Uh, um, The first thing I want to try to do this morning is to get us to break out of a fairly recent but bad habit by which we tend to identify worship with music and particularly with modes of praise and worship. I want to expand our understanding and definition of what counts as worship. And related to that, I want us to break out of the habit of only thinking about worship in terms of expression, as if worship is something that we do from the bottom up. I think most of us assume that worship is kind of our activity and that it is this sort of bottom-up endeavor in which I come and bring my sacrifice of praise. Of course, it is, I mean, it is that. Read the Psalms. That's, that's obviously part of it. But that's actually only half the story of what's going on in worship. Worship isn't just expressive, a bottom-up activity that we undertake. Worship is an encounter in which the living Lord is the primary actor and agent that the one who is really primarily at work in the encounter that is worship is not us, but God. And so we are being called into an encounter which is not just us showing why and how we love the Lord. It's also a space in which God is getting a hold of and molding and shaping and remaking us because God is the agent who's at work here. It's one of the reasons why I I will... um, I, I always find it puzzling when we gather for worship and then sing about ourselves. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Wait a second. What? Who, who are we talking about here? Who, who's at stake here? Who's the center of this story? What's, what's at work? So here's why I want to, again, slightly push back or at least expand our understanding of worship, and it's because of this. Because human beings are worshiping creatures. We are made to worship. We can't not worship. In fact, it is a defining feature of being human is to worship. And so I want to explain or try to make a case to you for why human beings are liturgical animals. And there's all kinds of reasons why you should have red flags in your head when you hear the phrase liturgical animals, and I'm going to walk you through that, okay? So don't freak out. Give me half an hour, all right, to make the case for that. The reason is because... uh, um, Think of it this way. I want to start with an axiom. Here's a working axiom. Every form of worship and discipleship assumes, implicitly assumes, some understanding of human persons. Okay? Every form of worship and discipleship implicitly, tacitly, unwittingly assumes some understanding or model of what human beings are. We don't talk about it, we don't make it explicit, but it is always implied in how we go about planning worship, participating in worship, leading discipleship, and so on. Now, why would that matter? Because depending on what you think human beings are will change and transform what you think worship is and what you think discipleship is. Now, and my primary concern is that I think most of us in contemporary North American evangelicalism implicitly and and unwittingly, perhaps, assume that human beings are thinking things. I, this, this, this sort of hit home for me several years ago. I was reading Christianity Today magazine, came across this big color advertisement for a Bible memory verse program as the means of discipleship. And it was a picture of a man's face, and, and like me, he had a very high forehead. And uh, uh, blazoned across his forehead were the words, you are what you think. You are what you think. Now, if you assume that human beings are fundamentally thinking things, if you assume that human beings are defined by what we know, by the knowledge that is contained in our minds, if, in other words, you believe that you are what you think, then you will plan worship and discipleship accordingly, right? That is, you will primarily think that what's at stake in discipleship is some kind of information transfer whereby the way we make disciples of Jesus is by filling their intellectual receptacles with the right ideas, beliefs, and knowledge that they need to know who they are supposed to be. If you are what you think, then the way you become a disciple of Jesus is to think Christianly. Now, um, first of all, you you wanna be very, very careful when you start pushing back against this. Because the, the immediate assumption is, well, if you don't agree with that, you must be anti-intellectual. But that's not true. The problem, the question and the issue is not whether we think. The question is whether we are fundamentally and primarily and only thinkers. And I want to suggest that that actually is a very reductionistic picture of the human person. I I think it, it effectively reduces us down to as if we were brains on a stick. And if we are just brains on a stick, then the only thing that matters is making sure that we get the right ideas, beliefs, and knowledge in our head. And boom, presto, you're good to go. You will be like Jesus. How's that working out for you? Right? How many of you know what you should do and don't do it? You better all raise your hands, okay? I'm raising my hand, right? In other words, we all uh, um, have an experience in realizing that our problem in imaging Christ is not that we lack the know-how or the knowledge or the information. There's something else that's going on. And I want to suggest that's because you are not only what you think. You are not even... Careful now. You are not even fundamentally or primarily what you think. I want to suggest that human beings aren't thinking things, we are lovers. To be human is to be a lover. You'll also get nervous about that. Hang on, I'll walk you back from the edge on that, okay? Here's what I mean Instead of assuming that you are what you think, Imagine the difference it would make if we started from the axiom, you are what you love. You are what you love. That that's what defines you. Now, I think this is a biblical intuition. I think it's one of the reasons why the language of the heart is such a resonant theme throughout Scripture. But I will also confess that the the sort of real impetus for me to start thinking about this alternative way of seeing human beings was St. Augustine. And in particular, St. Augustine's Confessions. And in the opening prayer of Augustine's Confessions, the, so the, the whole of the confessions is kind of his spiritual autobiography. And, and uh, it's all written in, in the form of a prayer to the Lord. And at the very end of the very first paragraph, he says this famously. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Right? He's talking to the Creator. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now notice, first of all, there's a design claim in there. You have made us for something, right? There's a purpose. There's an end. There's a goal here. You have made us, you, Creator God, have made us human beings for yourself. So to be humans who are created in the image of God is actually to be created as those who have been made to love God and love what God loves. That's what we are made for. That's the normative design of being human. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Do you know that heart move right there? and, And the entire... Uh, Script, if you will, of Augustine's confessions is him realizing that there are points at which he has all the information and knowledge he needs, but he is not yet a lover of God. There's something else that has to happen. It's not just an information switch that needs to be tripped. There's something else going on deeper and more fundamentally in him. He needs his loves reordered. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So think of it this way. Instead of seeing human beings as brains on a stick or these kinds of intellectual containers waiting to be filled with all the right ideas, beliefs, and doctrines, what difference would it make if you had a more dynamic picture in which you you, uh, start with the assumption that human beings are lovers, which means that we are made to long for God. We are made to desire God and what God desires. Now, one of, the, one of the things I think helps us to get at this dynamic is uh, I, I'm suggesting that human beings are lovers, right? To be human is to love. You can't not love. That's what you're made for. And you love something ultimate. And, and I want to use the words love, longing, and desire synonymously. Right? I want to use those terms interchangeably. Now that requires a little bit of a, a two-step because I think, do some of you have a feeling like desire is kind of a bad word? It's like, a little bit, yeah, seems like, okay. I can desire when I'm married, maybe, something like that. I, I think, the, unfortunately, the word desire has a little bit of a negative connotation in, the Christ, in, in well, I would say in modern evangelicalism, that it shouldn't. In fact, Augustine says that in a way, agape, right, agape love is rightly ordered eros. Agape love is rightly ordered desire. So to say that we are lovers is to say that we are desiring creatures. It's to say that we long for something and actually really someone ultimate. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So to be a human is to be a lover. Now, what do you think the effect of sin and fallenness and brokenness is on that structure, that feature of being human? It's not that you stop loving. It's not that it turns off desire. The effect of sin and brokenness and the fall on this structural feature of being human is not that we don't love, it's that we love the wrong things in the wrong way. To be human is to be a lover. You can't be a human and not be a lover. To be human is to desire. To be human is to long for something ultimate. You have been made for God. You long for God. And the effect of sin in the fall is not that you stop longing for God. It's that you start longing for all kinds of substitutes for God. You start loving the wrong things, Augustine says, in the wrong way. And so the idols in our lives are not primarily intellectual conclusions we reach, the idols in our lives are the things we desire as if they could satisfy us when only God can. The idols in our lives are, well, you could say they are erotic. <laughs> but that can be true if they are money, power, and prestige. Because what's happening is, is your love is disordered and, and, and uh, misdirected, and now you are pursuing some part of the creation as if it could satisfy you like the creator. You are absolutizing, you are idolizing some part of the world as if it will satisfy you. And by the way, that is, I hope at some point in the Tyndale curriculum, you all read Augustine's Confessions. And uh, what you'll see in the Confessions is it is a long story of Augustine trying to love all kinds of things in the wrong way as if they would satisfy him. And and remember that phrase in that opening prayer, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are what? Restless until they rest in you, why? The word for restless there in quietum is like anxious, unsettled, not at peace, fretting, frantic, frenetic. Why? Because what's happening is you have been made to find your ultimate rest and peace and desire in God. And if you go looking for it in all of these substitutes, you will experience nothing but frustration. They will never be what you need them to be. And so then you'll keep trying other things and you'll keep fretting around and looking for other substitute gods. And what will happen is, is you will constantly be disappointed because they can never return your love. They can never be what you are ultimately longing for. And so our, I think this is one way to almost kind of read our culture as well. Our culture is a desiring culture. Our, in, in many ways, the, the cultural dynamics that we can see around us give expression to the fact that we are made to love. It's just that we're loving all the wrong things in all the wrong way. There's an a old... Johnny Lee song from the movie Urban Cowboy, which is like probably from when some of your parents were young. Uh, but it, it goes, um, oh, I can never do lyric. I can never just say, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Have you ever heard this? Looking for Love. That's, that's an Augustinian song. Look, actually, a lot of country music is very Augustinian, I would argue. <laughs> Looking for love in all the wrong places. It's not that looking for love is wrong. That's what it is to be human. It's looking for love in all the wrong places, from all the wrong substitutes. How are we doing, okay? So, to be human is to be a lover, is to long. It's not you are what you think. It's you are what you love. That's what defines you. If I, if I really want to know who you are, if I really want to know the essence and kernel of your identity, if I want to know what makes you tick, I am not going to ask you, what do you know? That, that's actually not really going to tell me much about what really makes you tick because there are 15 million things you know that are not essential to you at all, right? I might not even ask you what you believe, The question I want you to answer is this, what do you want? What do you want? That's what really tells me what's churning in the core of your being. That's what tells me who you really are. Now, we're going to talk about in a moment why that's a bit of a, a problematic question because you're all Tyndale University College students and faculty, and so when I ask you what do you want, You all know what the right answer is, right? So you're going to tell me the right answer. And yet in the depths of our hearts, we also know that there can be a significant gap between my knowing what the answer is and what I really want. That's the gap that we need to to think about. Okay, so there's a last, last piece of this sort of alternative model of the human person as desiring creature, as lover, that I want to unpack, and it's this. If you are what you love, and your loves are this kind of dynamic way that you are after something, right? You are longing for something. You are oriented towards something ultimate. And really and truly, that is only satisfied in God. But in fact, we create all kinds of substitute ultimacies, right? We create all kinds of rival kingdoms that we pursue and rival God. If, if that's what love is, now we need to grapple with one last piece of the model, and it's this. Loves are habits. Love is a habit. Now, what do we mean by that? Um, and, and by the way, if you want a sort of uh, a locus classicus in the New Testament to look at this, I would point you to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. When we say that love is a habit, what we mean is that it is an acquired disposition that makes you tend in a certain direction. Now the reason why we're talking about this, I feel like uh, as North American, I'm I mean, gonna assume many of us are North American Protestants, uh, we don't really have habit as a moral category. We don't really quite know what to do with that and it sounds, sometimes we worry that it sounds like works or something like that. So we need to get over that for a second because um, another way of saying that love is a habit is to say love is a virtue. Now, what does it mean to say that love is a virtue? Well, virtues are good habits. (laughs) Do you know what bad habits are? Vices. Vices. Okay. So, virtues are good habits. What does that mean? It means that you have, habits are these kind of learned, acquired character traits that, that form in you a disposition, Thomas Aquinas would say, or Aristotle would say. That is, they form in you this kind of inclination so that now you are becoming the kind of person who sort of naturally acts towards that end, right? That's what it is to have a good habit. That's what it is to have a virtue. So, so Aquinas would say, if I have the virtue of compassion, what that means is, is when I'm in a situation that calls for compassion, I don't have to think about it. Why? Because I'm just that kind of person. I have become, my character has been so shaped that now I I am disposed. I tend to be compassionate because it's woven into my very fiber, the fiber of my being. So when Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says, put on, he uses this clothing metaphor, put on compassion, put on forgiveness, put on Patience, and then he says, and over all of these things, the NIV translates helpfully, over all these virtues, put on love. Why? Because love is the pinnacle ordering virtue. It's the if if you go with the clothing metaphor, it's kind of the big chunky belt that's that's the accessory that pulls together the whole ensemble. Okay? And so if, if that means love is a virtue, then that means love is a habit. Right? That's a little bit weird for us, I think, to think of, especially because I, I find we often make the emphasis that love is a decision. Now, that, I, I totally get that. You know, I've been married for 24 years. I'm well aware of the fact that every day my wife has to wake up and decide to love me. <laughs> well aware of that. Um, on the other hand... If when love also becomes so, it's not a feeling, right? We're we're all agreed we're not talking about love as a feeling or emotion, and so in that sense, love is a commitment. It's a promise. It's a covenant. On the other hand, love also becomes a character trait, a disposition that I learn so that it becomes woven into the fiber of my character. So people like Aristotle and Aquinas would say, to acquire a virtue is actually to have something become second nature. Have you ever used that heard that phrase before? Now, why do we call something second nature? Because well, it's like first nature. Well, what's going on in first nature is you do things without thinking about it. So you're all sitting there right now and for the last at least, I'll say seven minutes or so, have been breathing. Right? First nature has been d- disposing you to breathe. And you did that without thinking about it. What it means to be virtuous is actually to have been formed and shaped in such a way that now these character traits, these Good habits have, have become so woven into the fiber of who you are that you are compassionate without thinking about it, the way you breathe. It's natural. It's become natural for you. How does that happen? That's the key question. How do I become the kind of person who, for whom love, is rightly ordered love, is woven into the very fabric of who I am? This is the this last piece of the model. It takes practice. It takes practice. Actually, Aristotle and Aquinas and Augustine and, and, and the, uh, a long Christian tradition would say you learn the virtues, including the virtue of love. You learn the virtues in two ways. One is actually by imitating those who are exemplars of the virtuous life. You, you follow the example of models. You imitate. We, we tend to have a negative view of imitation in our culture where you're supposed to be authentic Um, that that doesn't make sense in the New Testament because the New Testament at several points says be imitators of me, Paul says as I imitate Christ imitation is a good thing because you're actually learning to imitate Jesus is actually to start to learn how to be Christ-like that's the first way you learn virtue the second way is practice Going through the rhythms and routines and, if you will, rituals of a community of practice in such a way that in doing that over and over again, you are actually being sort of enfolded into a community story, and that story is being inculcated in you, and you are becoming a kind of person in the practice, right? You learn to love. You learn what to love. You learn who to love. You learn a disposition of your desire by being immersed in rhythms and rituals and practices and routines that over time are shaping your, in many ways, unconscious, affective orientation to the world. Okay? Learning to love takes practices. This is why I I, want to suggest that to say that we are lovers... Is also synonymous with saying that we are liturgical creatures. Why? Because I want to use the word liturgy, which is admittedly a kind of really churchy, old, stodgy kind of word. But it's I want to use the word liturgy as just a shorthand to talk about the most ultimate love-shaping practices. The practices, the kinds of practices you are immersed in that are shaping your most fundamental loves and longings are liturgies, okay? Liturgies are love-shaping practices that aren't just uh, um, something that you do. They do something to you. Liturgies are love-shaping practices that do something to you. Why? Because they are actually implicitly and tacitly and often not explicitly And yet, very powerfully, training you to love some ultimate vision of the good life. Some version of the kingdom. And you are, here's the thing. If liturgies are love-shaping practices that train you to long for some ultimate vision of the good life, it also means there are liturgies everywhere. There are liturgies everywhere. These aren't just churchy things. Liturgies aren't just something that you do, they do something to you, and if you start to look at our cultural immersion in this way, you will start to realize that you have been shaped by liturgies you didn't even realize, that your love has been aimed and primed and directed and trained in certain directions because you have been immersed in cultural rituals. That have tacitly and often unconsciously primed you to be kind of the kind of person who says, "I want this." My uh, w- when I was first starting to work on this, all my kids were teenagers, and whenever they would want to go to the mall, they would come and say, "Dad, would you take us to the temple?" Now, they were mocking me as they did that, but it was actually a parenting win for this reason. It grew out of a conversation around the dinner table, in which I tried to persuade them, and I think must have, that the mall is not a neutral space. That, in fact, the mall is, not e- is, is, in fact, one of the most intensely religious spaces in any city. That's not because when you walk into the mall, somebody is preaching a sermon and meets you with their statement of fundamental truths and says, here's the 16 things the mall believes, The last thing the mall wants you to do is believe. What makes the mall a religious site is the fact that it is a liturgical space. It is a site that orchestrates rituals and rhythms and routines that are trying to implant in me a desire for a certain vision of the good life. And for the most part and overwhelmingly, that vision of the good life, let's call it the gospel of consumerism, is not something that they are intellectually trying to convince me of. Instead, they are painting a picture of a way of life that makes me say, I want to go to there. Right? They paint an attractive picture of flourishing, and by my being immersed in those rhythms and rituals, that story is starting to sink into my bones and is actually starting to animate and orient my loves. The mall has an unbelievable evangelistic strategy. It's called marketing, okay? And the way marketing works, again, look, the the irony in all of this is that the church, for the most part, still thinks that we are thinking things. When marketers know you are a lover. Marketers know that you are not fundamentally and only a thinking thing. They know that you are desiring creatures. Because how does marketing work? Marketing doesn't give you any information at all. Really powerful, successful marketing is not trying to put information in your heads. Watch, watch, um, watch anything. Watch a beer commercial. Watch a don't watch a beer commercial. Um, it's pretty hard to watch hockey and not watch beer commercials though. Um, watch a Volkswagen ad. Okay, I don't know. Volkswagen ads are a great example because they're often targeting sort of your demographic, right? The twenty somethings who are first time car buyers. And if you watch a Volkswagen ad, they're not giving you any information about the specifications of the Volkswagen vehicle. It's actually very hard to watch a Volkswagen ad and learn anything about the product. How does a successful Volkswagen ad work? It paints a story. It tells a narrative. It sort of sketches and plays out a little mini 30 seconds. It's unbelievable what you can do in 30 seconds, but it tells a story in 30 seconds in which you want to become a character in that story. And it's not trying to convince your intellect, it's trying to capture your imagination. And by capturing your imagination, it's actually getting a hold of this visceral part of who you are, and it's actually training your love, and you start to think the good life is having this stuff. The gospel of consumerism captures us, because as Christians, I think if you've bought into the thinking thing brain on a stick model, what happens is your mode of cultural analysis is going to be primarily worried about messages and ideas in the culture. Do you know what I mean? If you think we are fundamentally thinking things, then the, the way you're going to be equipped to do sort of be on guard with respect to culture is you're going to be listening. Your radar is kind of set up to pick up on the competing messages and ideas. But the mall is not floating any ideas. And so it doesn't show up on your radar as anything to be worried about, right? So let's, let's go into the mall. What's, what's wrong with that? Now, you know going to movies or that now we know that there's something at stake there or going to the Supreme Court or whatever you know cults those those are the things we should worry about you might want to worry about Walmart you might want to worry about Disney You might want to worry about the things that you thought were safe and neutral and benign because actually when you start to read not their messages but their practices, you will start to realize that they are telling a story about the good life that is a rival gospel. And the way it is sinking into your bones is not because it's filling your head with ideas. It's because they are actually subtly and unconsciously and and, and in, in many ways tacitly training your affects, your affections and making you love a rival version of the good life. This is one of the reasons why, let's put it this way, uh, um, I'm all about worldview, love, and, and absolutely want to affirm the importance of Christians being able to think and articulate a Christian worldview and do worldview analysis. My only concern is that's not enough. Because if all you're focused on is sort of being able to intellectually articulate what we believe as Christians across the board. And if your worldview analysis only sort of primes you to pick up on the messages and ideas, what will happen is your radar isn't gonna be set up to pick up on all of the power of practices in a culture. All of the power of the rituals of a culture, which are not trying to change your mind. They're not trying to convince your intellect, they are trying to capture your heart and convert your imagination. And they are doing that pre-intellectually. So what we need is to be equipped with that kind of worldview capaciousness, plus have a liturgical reading of culture in which we start to realize that what's at stake in our cultural practices, our cultural participation, isn't just the ideas that might be threatening, but in fact, practices that are disorienting. Um, it's not enough to convince our intellect. We, we have to sort of recruit our loves, reform our loves, retrain our loves. And if our mode of discipleship, if our mode even of Christian education is only focused on the intellectual, what will happen is, is we will be seeding vast swaths of who we are to those rival liturgies. I I don't really like militaristic metaphors, but in a way you have to fight fire with fire, right? You can't, you can't, uh, uh, um, we can't just be trucking water to our heads when the fire is in our bellies, right? The, The rival fire is in our bellies. We need adequate countermeasures that actually retrain our loves and longings in the gospel story. And that's part of how I want to think about worship this evening. Let let me close with with an example that might kind of encapsulate this for you. What what I'm saying is, it's not enough to have your intellect convinced. You need to have your loves recaptured. And those are two different but complementary operations, right? Worship and discipleship aren't just information transfer, they aren't just intellectual arguments to try to convince you of an idea. They are sort of affective retrainings that reorient us to the good. And there can be a gap, a significant gap between those two things. My, my wife, Deanna, is an um, a unbelievable gourmet cook, master gardener. That's actually a thing. And... Uh, um, And also, like, really passionate about, like, just and healthy eating systems for a culture. Do you know? So, like, she both wants our family and people to eat well and in a healthy way, but she's also really passionate about food system and food production and food distribution that is good for God's creation and good for animals and good for society and so on and so forth. So we only have, like, in our freezer, we only have what she calls happy cows, and happy pigs, because they were raised free-range, gall- gallivanting all over before they were killed, but killed very humanely for my Italian sausage. So the, these these passions of sort of eating well and eating justly, right? Good eating in both of those senses is a big passion for her. She's been an evangelist of this sort of vision for a decade in our, in our home, and like any husband, I am obstinate and don't listen. Until a few years ago, she convinced me to um, read a book because she loves like Barbara King Solver and Michael Pollan and figures like that. And so I picked up an anthology by someone named Wendell Berry, who is is really just a great sort of articulator of this whole vision. And I was reading this anthology called "Bringing It to the Table," which is a fantastic introduction to these issues. And I, you know, I'm I'm a philosopher. I get paid to think. I love books, I love arguments, I'm the kind of guy who always has a book with me, because you never know when you might have 30 seconds of downtime that you need to kill, and so this, for a while, this book was my book, you know, I mean, it was the one stuck in the door of the car and things, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, so convicted, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm, you know, all these check marks in the margin, and amens, and you know, scr- highlighting everything, and I'm totally convinced by what Wendell Berry is telling me which, by the way, does not help your marriage because when your wife's been telling you the same thing for 10 years and you don't believe it until some other guy tells you, you have to work through a few things. So I'm totally convinced by Wendell Berry's argument. And one day I'm reading this and I hit one of these passages where I'm just kind of, uh, you know, struck by it. I'm, I'm ponsively reflecting. And then I look around and I realize I'm reading Wendell Berry in the food court at Costco. Do you have Costco up here in Canada? It's like, okay. So if you don't know anything about Wendell Berry, Costco is kind of everything that is wrong with the world. Okay? It's like, it's like the, in some ways, the most, it's, it's like a laboratory of, of, of what he's against. And here I am, reading and agreeing and, and nodding my head in agreement with Wendell Berry in the food court at Costco. Why? What's going on? He had convinced my intellect, but my habits, my longings, my wants were a long way from being reformed. What I needed, inhabiting that gap between a convinced intellect and a converted imagination, a reformed love, that is the space, well, it's the space of sanctification, isn't it? The space of sanctification is trying to close that gap between what we know and what we want to be in Christ's image. And the way to close that gap wasn't for me to get more information. It was for me to be reformed at that habitual level, at the level of my most fundamental wants and desires. And this evening, I want to talk about why worship, intentional, Formative Christian worship is the incubator in which our loves and longings are reformed and reoriented and rehabituated to Christ and his kingdom. I'll stop there for now. Thanks very much. much.